So this episode wasn't supposed to be released as number 53, but I screwed up. It happens sometimes. This was to be the final interview for Men's Mental Health Month, and I do have a great guest lined up, but unfortunately, I don't have the interview ready yet. So rather than leave a blank space in the schedule, I decided to bring this one forward. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that it has its place here. Our sense of identity is intrinsically connected with our mental health through its influence on self-esteem and sense of self-determination. So in this episode, I attempt to unpack identity and highlight some of the ways in which it can both help and hinder us as we stumble along through life. I touch on some of the themes raised with Tim Davies recently and also offer a little proactive advice on how we can find and maintain our identity to help us through challenging times. Let's get started. We're here, here, and now. Who are you? No, I mean, who are you really? This is one of those philosophical questions that lies alongside such cosmic questions as what does it all mean and why are we here? Can it ever truly have an answer? Or are we condemned to dance around the question knowing deep down that we will never really be able to answer it. Well, I think we can at least make an attempt. Because, irrespective of some cosmic answer, we can narrow down what we mean by the question at least. We can break up a small piece and analyse that with some confidence of getting to a reasonable answer. Quite simply, you are you. Or as the psychotherapist Fritz Perls put it, I do my thing and you do your thing. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations and you are not in this world to live up to mine. You are you, and I am I, and if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. If not, it can't be helped. In this conception, identity is something unique to you, like your fingerprint or your iris. Think about how you might describe yourself. Take your CV, for instance. There, on those few pages, is the history of you. Well, at least one version of it. No doubt it is a professional history, your academic background, your working history, the job titles you've held, the functions you've performed. It's a list of things you've done, but what does it say about who you really are? Probably not a lot. It doesn't talk about what you love and hate, what your sensitivities and proclivities are, and how well you relate to others, whether you're outgoing or introverted, whether you're often late or always show up early. But within those lines, punctuated by dates, are different versions of you that you inhabited with each iteration. If nothing else, you are malleable. The you that started that first job all those years ago was young, naive, impressionable, ready to be shaped and moulded. Maybe that you was often late because it hadn't learned the importance of punctuality yet. You became a version of you during that time, which informed later versions of you. You took a little of that with you, but it is not the same you that listens to this now. You've changed. You've adapted and grown through each life experience. But somehow, it is still just the story of you on those pages, a continuous identity linked from the past to the present by certain characteristics and features. What are some of those features? Let's begin with your name. It is probably written across the top of your CV in large, bold letters, lest the reader forget, for an instance, who it is they are reading about. Your name is the common thread that connects the you of old to the you of now, to others, perhaps even to yourself. 
you are that same person. Perhaps you have a photo of yourself on your CV. But think of a photo of yourself when you were younger. Or, as the brilliant comedian Mitch Hedberg once put it. One time a guy handed me a picture of me and said, Here's a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture of you when you were younger. Here's a picture of me when I'm older. You son of a bitch. How'd you pull that off? Let me see that camera. What's it look like? But that is a picture of you at some relatively recent time. So why not put in a picture of yourself alongside each of the positions that you once held as visual milestones showing how you've grown and changed, quite literally? Because it's all you, right? The size and shape of your nose, the colour of your skin, your eye colour, those things, within reason, remain unchanged. For all intents and purposes, the appearance of you as seen by the outside world persists over time. So as much as you might like to think nostalgically back to those earlier versions of yourself, The world sees you as just one version, you 1.0, from beginning to eternity. It is only you who feels like someone else on the inside. But even though we feel this detachment psychologically, we too build a vision of ourselves that connects up all of those dots of experience. We can't remember everything, there's just too much that goes on in our lives. And we may miss the significance of some things or focus too much on others. Think of how we reflect with someone on a shared experience, how we might remember different aspects of the same thing. We each perceive the world differently. We build a version of events. Different things stand out to us and maybe they become those memories. We also do this when we construct the story of our lives. It's called narrativism. I discussed this in episode 33 on stories. And emerging from that story, our stories, is that sense of identity, of a character in a play experiencing things. We are hardly aware that we're evolving slowly and subtly throughout our lives. We just aren't the same person psychologically from beginning to end. So we've already narrowed down identity a little. We've established that it is made up of two significant components. One that is unchanging for the most part. That's genetic, biological, physical. It exists as a form taking up space. It is a certain assemblage of atoms in the shape of you. That version of you You have virtually no control over, certainly not in a way that influences that physical form. I don't mean that in a direct sense, obviously, because, yeah, you can alter your physical appearance. But you didn't choose any of the features which you exhibit. You inhabit this body of flesh and bone. It is you, whether you like it or not. But then there's the other you, the psychological you, the conception of you that lives behind your eyes, in your mind, the one that your CV doesn't really describe. The one you're referring to when you think, People just don't understand me. They don't get me. That you. The inner you. The changing you. The you that goes through life alone. The homunculus witnessing events which tries to explain itself. That you is fragile, delicate, uncertain, changing and afraid. So it is not really surprising that we add layers of meaning onto this inner self to fortify and protect it. To hide it from the outside world to obscure its vulnerabilities and distract ourselves from its insecurities and neuroticism. These layers are the elements of our social identities which we form when we join groups. They inform how we operate and function within our social worlds. So that is the next piece of identity which we can analyse, and we can do this quite easily. Much of our social identities we did not choose either. Where we were born and when are factors beyond our control. 
yet they are responsible for shaping so much of our norms and values. They may be so powerful as to deprive us of even a sense of individual identity. If we are born into a place of collectivism, servitude or sparse cognitive resources, our existence may be dictated, coerced and manipulated and therefore our identity is simply a reflection of what our social world inflicted upon us. That is an unfortunate reality for many, but it is certainly not the only one. For those of us lucky enough to have been born into a society which values the individual right to freedom, our social identity is formed by first our families and then our peers. In fact, it may even be the case that our identity is itself forged in stages as we develop from infants to children, adolescence and eventually adulthood. German-American developmental psychologist Eric Erikson theorised eight stages of psychosocial development that give rise to individual identity. We see in this theory the combining of two significant forces in our lives, the psychological, that is, the needs and functioning of the mind, with the social, the needs and functioning of society. Together, they describe the confluence of our inner and outer worlds, the world we inhabit in our minds, with the world we inhabit with others. It is probably the fifth stage in Erikson's model that defines our growing identities the most. He called this the fidelity stage of identity versus role confusion. It occurs between the ages of 12 and 18, during that painful transition from child to adult, where we begin to question who we are and where we are situated in the social order of things. We are slipping the bonds of our family home and forging our psychological independence as a unique individual, ready to chart our own direction in life. This is also where we begin to establish our own sense of morality by recognising where we have come from and noticing that there are choices for how we should behave, for how to be, and these can perform different functions for us. Our parents and community have shaped our norms and values, but we begin to see these in isolation as specific influences which we may not necessarily agree with, which are limited in scope and open for change. The social forces that shaped our parents are different to the ones that shaped us, and we begin to see the world in a different way, our own unique way, and we resist the forces that formed us and see them instead as forces that restrain us, that hold us back from becoming who we are. The level of resistance to this drive for change is what leads to identity confusion, the struggle between the image of the self according to the world our parents came from and the self that exists in the world of the present. Like a tension between the old and the new, fidelity comes from accepting that we can't resist everything. So we must form alliances and accept that there are many ways of being in the world, so we must act cooperatively with empathy and acceptance of others if we are to succeed. But our identity is confused, and in its early stages of development, we are only just beginning to learn who we are, both morally and psychologically. Yet we are aware of the struggle of others, if only vaguely at first. The conflict that results with this period of growth can lead to what Erickson termed identity crisis, where the youth just doesn't know who they are or who they are expected to be. There are just too many possibilities, and the past just does not seem to fit with the future. This is a troubling time, and is often the first time we realise the challenges of identity, that simply being is complicated hard and often ambiguous. But it's not all bad. During this period and the one that follows, we begin to see our potential. This is frightening. Choice is overwhelming if we are lucky enough to have it. But we soon realise that we can choose a path. We are finally free 
to be who we are. And so new layers of identity begin to be forged. We seek out and find social groups which appeal to us and to which we want to belong. Our attraction to these groups may have been formed long before, or perhaps our encounter with them is simply by chance, but either way, we begin to learn the criteria for entry and sustained membership of different social groups. Now, these groups demand certain things of their members, certain patterns of behaviour, language and values and norms, which tell the world in no uncertain terms who you are and who are your people. There are many examples of this. Virtually every social group we can belong to exhibits these traits. Social in this context is not literally having fun, although it might be, but it's also our professional groups, our academic groups, our sports groups, our religious groups, all of the different ways that we can align ourselves with others. These are forms of social influence that mould and shape our identities. Where our identity was just beginning to be formed as a unique entity, it is quickly subsumed within a collective where nuances no longer defining and conformity is rewarded. There are great psychological benefits to this. We all long to belong, after all. If we have found our crowd, then life is much easier, as we know what to wear, how to speak, what to value, who to love, who to hate, and why. Our value systems are handed to us, potted, explicit. And it feels great. If we come through that period of identity confusion, then it's a great relief to finally have something to belong to. And if we sought out this group because we knew all along that's where we wanted to be, then we are also relieved that we finally made it. Think of the danger in this though. The lost soul looking for a place to fit in is easily attracted by influences which offer little long-term benefits. Think maybe the drug addict, the criminal, the gang member. There are many others. Compare this to, say, the scientist, the fireman, the doctor, or the soldier. Each of these groups sets a high bar for entry. But a determined individual, willing to pay the price and put the work in, earns membership of these groups because the appeal of belonging to the group to base one's own identity on that form, those values, it's overwhelming and the reward is so great. Henry Tajfal developed social identity theory. We've talked about this before. He emphasised the distinction between the in-group and the out-group. That is, the way in which one group bolsters its collective ego and its members' sense of identity and the values they share and runs down those who are on the outside. The lines between us and them are distinct and exaggerated and this serves as a psychological tool to strengthen the bonds within the group and fortify its exclusivity. This is a process Tajfel called salience. In another context, we've described this as othering. I saw a meme recently which said, People ask what you do for a living so they can calculate the level of respect to give to you. Now, I think this is overstating the point somewhat, but it does speak to how we appraise and relate to each other in terms of our social identities. Think about the groups you belong to and the sources of your social identity. What norms do you follow to belong? Me, I'm a pilot, and that comes with many norms and role behaviours. There's a certain look, an expectation of restraint, a lack of emotion and hot-headedness. It's a constrained character, but organised, professional. Individuality cannot flourish within this group. Those characteristics must take place elsewhere. But feedback from other members and from those on the outside bolster the ego and make membership of that group something to be proud of and coveted. However, the professional social identity becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy where members are moulded and shaped according to the expectations of the group. 
And what is interesting about these characteristics is that they're often informed by external perceptions and not necessarily those specific to the identity role. I spoke about this with Tim Davies recently, where I cited a study of New York City police officers who tended to adopt the behaviours and characteristics of their on-screen counterparts from crime dramas like NYPD Blue and Law and Order. The fictional representations of police officers depicted in these shows were based on their real-life counterparts, but then they took on a life of their own, which the general public and then the real officers themselves adopted as part of their social and professional identity. So this also speaks to the malleability of identity, both of the individual able to take on these role behaviours, but also of the groups who modify their group characteristics to fit an ideal which is at best arbitrary and at worst dysfunctional and self-serving. Identity then offers a range of challenges which must be managed by the individual. This begins with acceptance of certain compromises, in exchange for group acceptance and belonging. Perhaps we are drawn to certain groups because of our perceptions of what they consist of and the types of people that are within them, our heroes and role models. But what if the groups we find ourselves gaining access to are not what we thought they were? The demands to adapt and alter our value systems may ask too much of our personal identity. This creates a dissonance between who we are and who we are expected to be, and this can lead to psychological tension which ultimately makes us feel miserable and like we've sold our soul or compromised our integrity and the things which are most important to us, more so than even the perceived virtues of belonging to the group that we so coveted. In this situation, we are faced not with an identity crisis, but a crisis of conscience and a loss of authenticity. How much we are willing to negotiate with our values is a personal decision that varies between individuals and may even change depending on circumstance. Looking at this close up, this may be simply accepting to do a job we don't really agree with simply because we are being paid enough to do it. For instance, maybe you're a vegetarian, but you also need to provide for your family, so you work at a fast food burger restaurant and sell products that you wouldn't consume yourself. How much would you need to be paid to do certain things? To sell a faulty product, an unneeded warranty, to smuggle drugs, or to kill? Are these really questions of integrity, though, or are they intrinsically related to our identity, after all? What I mean by this is, do we make decisions under duress because we feel we have no choice? We just have to do what we have to do. I can't beat him, join him sort of thing. Or are we fooling ourselves by thinking that that's not who we are? We don't want to do it, but we just have to for the greater good of our families or our own survival. The answer to this is not binary, but it gives us some food for thought because we can always rationalise our way in and out of our choices and blame external factors for our failures. It's what we do. So perhaps it is wrong to associate our cognitive biases with our identity because these things operate through us, regardless of who we are, or at least who we think we are. But let's move on to one of the biggest challenges of identity, one which is facing many people today, particularly in my own industry, and which can lead to tragic outcomes. I'm talking about a loss of identity. I explored this in some detail with Tim, the idea that when we are removed from our professional identity, although this could also be some other group we belong to. We can lose our sense of self. We become rudderless, lost and isolated. This is particularly true of the transition from the military to civilian world after years of immersion in that culture. But I also see it now in the many thousands of pilots suddenly without a job. They've worked hard for many years to gain access to that exclusive club and then with the stroke of an accountant's pen, they left jobless. It's not just the uncertainty of not knowing where the next paycheck is coming from or what they will do with their time. 
It's more important, it's the loss of belonging to that group which has given them so much psychological capital. The social identity of belonging to that group has become more important than individual identity. So take that away and what's left? This is the danger of investing too much into one source of identity. For when it is taken away, and eventually it will be, everything is lost. This is also relevant to those transitioning from a working career to retirement. After working five or more days a week for decades, following the same routine, being part of something, getting good at it, structuring one's life around persistent routines, norms and behaviours. And then one day, it's over. There's no gradual transition. In an instant, it's all gone. The impacts of this can be devastating for those individuals. And while we cannot infer causation, there does appear to be a correlation with retirement and increased mortality, particularly for men. But interestingly, this increased risk also seemed to be mitigated by increasing retirement age. So if we work for longer, we have more to live for, say, and more meaning and purpose when we do eventually retire. The sense of identity loss is less significant, and we're more ready to accept and relax into our twilight years. But for those in a younger age group who have been forced out of the workforce or the professional group that they most closely associate with, there are real challenges to be addressed. So how then can one fortify oneself against the risks and minimise the impacts a loss of identity can have? Here's a couple of strategies, beginning with diversification. As appealing as the social group we covet membership of is, when we get there, we must be careful not to let it become everything in our lives. Build relationships outside of that group. Join clubs, play sports, socialise with other people. This serves the mutual benefits of alleviating the social identity pressure of the main group and also contributing further to the values of your individual identity. This serves to reduce in-group and out-group friction by encouraging empathy and understanding. And it also lessens the rigidness of group identity by making the boundaries less distinct and relevant. And one more thing, try to build relationships with people. Get to know individuals, the identities of other people independent of a background that you've come from or that you even have in common from the same group. Try to get beyond just those professional and social identity characteristics to understand the individual identities of others. So what else makes people tick beyond group norms and values? You might be surprised at just how diverse people's interests really are. When others do this with you, you will realise that you have so much to be proud of beyond simply what you do for a living or what church or school you attend. Within each of us is an individual identity trying to make sense of our life and the world that we inhabit. We seek out groups to help us feel that sense of belonging, where we can stop worrying about who we are. But we mustn't neglect that journey altogether. Because if we do, one day when that group is no longer there, and if we haven't invested time into developing our sense of individual identity, we will suffer. And we will be forced to return to that formative stage and we may end up with a crisis of identity where we reflect upon our lives and realise that we never really gave ourselves the time or even permission to follow our heart and pursue the things that truly make us happy and that give us our sense of meaning and purpose beyond the shallow constructions of social identity. So start early and seek out those alternative narratives and don't be afraid to allow yourself to become who you are and who you are meant to be. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>